tremble at your word. We know that you say your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And indeed it is. We would be in the dark without your word. Father, your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is indeed the sword of your spirit. And so please, by your spirit, wield the sword of your word this morning. Convict us of sin. Train us in righteousness. Comfort us. Thoroughly equip us for every good work. And most of all, glorify your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the mundane tasks of pastoral ministry that I dreaded the most when I was regularly preaching several times a week was was that day when I was asked to give a title to whatever sermon I was going to preach. I I don't have that creative bone in my body. I'm not good at those kinds of things. And so I always struggled to figure out how to encapsulate in two or three words or in a short sentence the the nature of a text of Scripture. But in this particular text, I was helped by reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist minister, preached on this text. And the title that he gave is perhaps the best title which could be applied to this section of Scripture. He said he entitled it, In Extremis. And the reason why he used this Latin phrase is... This phrase means something like, at the farthest reaches, or or, at the point of death. We might say something like, at the end of the rope, when you've reached your limit, when you feel as if you can't go any further. That's what in extremis means. And it's an apt title for this section of the psalm, because the psalmist here has been brought to what Spurgeon calls the lowest condition of anguish and depression. And it's striking that he reaches this lowest point in this particular psalm. Because Psalm 119 is a psalm essentially celebrating the Word of God. It's it's one of three Torah psalms in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119 all all celebrate the glories of the Word of God, the way in which the Word of God gives us strength and is, is precious and teaches us what we need to know and gives us guidance when we don't have any guidance. And yet in the midst of celebrating all the benefits of the Bible, the psalmist comes to this point and reveals for us a low moment in his life, a time when he was in anguish, a time when he had reached the end and thought he might be able to go no further. And perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you can think of a time in your life, maybe in the recent past, maybe in the distant past, maybe you've watched someone reach this point in his or her life, where you have felt as if you had reached the very end. You might have said, I'm hanging on by a thread here whether it was emotionally or spiritually or perhaps even physically. Maybe it was because of a trial or a sickness or just the constant grind of life. Uh, Maybe it was because of a broken relationship or some kind of betrayal, some crisis that you didn't expect. And and, and as as soon as you thought you were through it, it, it hit you again. This is what the psalmist is describing here. You know, we see people go through this kind of thing all the time, and what we realize is that 
Oftentimes, when someone is enduring this kind of heartache, this kind of discouragement, there, there really aren't words to express it. And maybe you found yourself there as well. You've reached a point and others want to help and you know they want to help and they ask you how they can help, but, 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 but you can't really capture it with words. Or, or you've tried to come alongside someone who seems like he's in this place and you realize there just aren't words to describe it. And so what a great gift that the psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes us and, and, and gives shape to, to this experience of being at the very end of himself. Now, I want to set the context a little bit more. I've mentioned already that this is one of the Torah Psalms. This is a Psalm that celebrates the Word of God. In fact, every stanza of this Psalm deals with the Word of God, including this one, although he's in the depths of despair when he writes it. Uh, but the whole Psalm deals with those kinds of things. But it's, it's also a Psalm that's unusual in other ways. It's the longest Psalm in the whole Psalter, 176 verses, Psalm 119. It's an acrostic psalm. You may have noticed right above verse 81 in your Bible is a Hebrew letter, and maybe it's transliterated in your Bible as kaf. And that's because each of the stanzas in this psalm has a Hebrew letter associated with it, and each line in this stanza begins with the Hebrew letter kaf. You can't see it in English because of the way they have to translate these words, but if you were reading it in Hebrew, you'd see verse 81 and verse 82 and verse 83 each begin with that same Hebrew letter, and the same is true in the other uh, sections of this psalm. It's an acrostic psalm. And it's in the context of book five of the Psalter. If you've ever read through the Psalms, perhaps you've noticed that there are five books, book one, two, three, four, and five. This is in book five of the Psalter, and it comes right before this section in the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent or the Songs of Ascent. And just after Psalm 118, which is a song that repeats this phrase over and over again, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. So in between giving thanks to the Lord and these songs of ascent, we have this great acrostic Torah psalm. And right here, virtually in the middle of that Torah song, is this cough section, which deals with suffering. It is an intensely personal section of the psalm. In fact, one commentator, J.A. Alexander, said of all of Psalm 119, there is no psalm in the whole collection which has more the appearance of having been exclusively designed for practical and personal improvement. In other words, this psalm as a whole, not just this section, but as a whole, uh, gives us an overview of, of the life of faith of what it means to trust in the Lord and trust His Word and how that interacts with our emotions and how that interacts with our spiritual condition at various points in our life. Well, at this point in his life, he's at a low moment. And the psalmist responds here, as we'll see, to two basic realities. And these two basic realities that he is dealing with that has brought him to this point of being at the end of the line are two realities that actually the Bible tells us are realities that we can expect as Christians. And they provide the heading for our study today. The first reality 
that the psalmist is dealing with, that he's wrestling with at this low moment, is the reality of spiritual longing. Look at what he says right in verse 81. He expresses it very clearly. My soul longs for your salvation. Now, we're going to see exactly why the psalmist longs for the salvation of the Lord. But the point is that the psalmist begins by explaining himself and his situation as one that is waiting for that which has not yet happened. Well, the psalmist understood the salvation of the Lord in some measure. He clearly has a relationship with the Lord. He clearly knows the Lord. But what he's speaking about is the future salvation that the Lord will provide that he has not yet experienced, that he's not yet seen in its fullness. And what he says is day after day, as he struggles and faces all the trials that he'll outline for us, what he waits for, what he longs for, what he feels this sense of loss as he patiently awaits is the salvation of the Lord. Now he uses a very vivid imagery for this that I think explains his longing even further in verse 83. Look at what he says in 83, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. And that's his way of describing the deep and intense personal longing that he mentions in verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation, and verse 82, my eyes long for your promise and I ask when will you comfort me? What's he mean in verse 83 when he uses this image of becoming a wineskin in the smoke? Well, in order to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about the way in which uh, this culture in which the psalmist lived operated with leather wineskins. You see, the way it would work is you'd have this wineskin that perhaps you'd take on a long journey or perhaps you'd use day to day, but to store the wineskin... What they would do in this time, and this would be true whether you were in a tent or whether you were in a slightly more permanent dwelling, is you'd, you'd put the wineskin up in the rafters. You'd hang some kind of rope around it, and you'd lift it up to get it off the floor, to get it off the ground as a way of storing this wineskin. And because the wineskin was leather and it would be hanging up there in the rafters, it would be susceptible to all the smoke that would arise from whatever fire you had, either in the tent or in the, uh, in the dwelling place. And, and, and so what would happen over time, you can imagine this leather that would be hanging there in the midst of the smoke, is it would become wrinkled and, and blackened from the smoke. It would begin to crack. And what the psalmist is saying is, if, if you can imagine that wineskin that's been, been hanging up there in the midst of the smoke, that's, that's something of what you see when you see my face. That's something of the way in which I feel inside. You know, today, uh, wrinkle reduction is big business. Now, why is that? Because people want to look as if they're younger than they actually are because Typically, in the normal course of human experience, as we age, as we, as we face all kinds of difficulties and trials, these wrinkles begin to form in our faces. And the psalmist says, that's what's happened to me prematurely. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Have you ever walked into a room and seen someone that you know very well, and immediately, just by looking at their face you know that something's wrong. 
Or perhaps they've done it with you. Sometimes it can be a little frustrating when someone does that. You're trying to mask the pain that you're enduring, and they walk in, and they know you so well, they immediately say, what's wrong? I could, something's wrong. Well, the psalmist wore that kind of visage all the time. The wrinkles, the worries, the difficulties, the fears, the trials had so beset him for so long. He had spent so long longing for the salvation of the Lord, looking for the promise of the Lord. Spent so long doing that that it was permanently etched into his countenance. Spurgeon again writes this about the psalmist. I think he puts it very well. The psalmist's face through sorrow had become dark and dismal, furrowed as to have lost its natural moisture and to have become like a skin dried and tanned. His character had been smoked with slander and his mind parched with persecution. This is the psalmist's regular facial expression because of how bad it had gotten. This is not some mere momentary annoyance, although those sometimes can throw us. No, this is some kind of long-term grief and loss, the kind of thing that we would know today that would lead to a loss of sleep and a, a deep anxiety, perhaps even a change in our physical condition. The psalmist says, really what it boils down to in the end is I'm longing for the salvation of the Lord. One Puritan commentator described his longing in this way, and perhaps you've known something like this yourself. But when he sinketh under the burden of a grievous, tedious, or long affliction, then he is said to faint. And when all the reasons and grounds of his comfort are quite spent, and he can hold out no longer, he says, my soul longs for your salvation. He keeps looking day after day, waking up in the morning and thinking, perhaps this will be the day when things will change. Perhaps this will be the day when I will no longer feel this deep sense of longing. And day after day, as he opens his eyes, as he looks for the promise of God to be fulfilled, as he looks for the future salvation of God to happen for him, he comes up empty. Now, I want to say that this is an extreme case that the psalmist is describing, although it may be one that you can relate to. But while it is extreme in one sense, in terms of its longevity and perhaps in terms of its severity, there is a sense in which the Bible says that all Christians, all those who are trusting in Christ for their salvation, have some measure of this, some measure of looking forward for something that has yet to come. While it is true that Christians today live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb and look back and see all these promises fulfilled, promises that God made in the Old Testament that He fulfilled to the letter in the New Testament and while there is a very real sense in which we receive profound, great, deep comfort by the Holy Spirit, and He enables us to continue on in faith and persevere in the midst of trials, while all that is true, there is also a sense in which 
The New Testament makes it very clear that Christians live between promise and fulfillment. There are promises that have been made to us as Christians that have yet to be fulfilled. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, for instance, can look back on the Old Testament believers. Believers who did not enjoy all the privileges, it has to be said, that we enjoy but who nonetheless have an analogous experience to ours. Here's what the writer to Hebrews says about all those believers in the Old Testament. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And then he goes on to say, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us and The writer goes on to exhort us to continue on in faith, following after their example, looking for those things that are promised for us in the future. Many of the Puritans used to refer to the whole Bible as God's promissory note. In other words, it contains all these promises of God. And we hang on to them because we know they're true. We know that one day they'll be given to us. We know that we're joined together with Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're, you're adopted as God's son. And, and, and if you're sons, the Bible says, then heirs. And we have not yet received all that we will receive, but we continue on in faith. And so there's a sense in which, while this psalmist is revealing for us in a way that very few can reveal the deep longing that he feels for the salvation of the Lord, that Longing, in some measure, is a longing that all of us know from time to time, to some degree. And this leads us to the second reality. The second reality, and actually the reality that if you were to, if you were to do a, a kind of analysis of this section of the psalm and try to outline it, this, this reality comes at the center. The psalmist uses a, a word uh, over and over again at the center of this Psalm, it's a, it's a Hebrew word for persecution. And that's the second reality that he faces, the reality of spiritual longing. But that reality of spiritual longing is underscored and is amplified because of the reality of persecution. He's become like a wineskin in the smoke, he says. But why is that? Well, look at verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. What the psalmist is facing is the reality of spiritual longing, but the reality of spiritual longing because he's facing those who persecute him regularly. Now, I want to say this again. This may be an extreme case. In fact, it is perhaps an extreme case, but, but nonetheless, this too is something that applies to every believer in Jesus Christ. You know what the Apostle Paul says? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does Jesus say to his disciples? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so this persecution, the nature of this persecution may differ from time to time, but the reality of it persists even today. What have they done? Well, according to verse 85, they've dug pitfalls for him. And according to verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. See, what this persecution consists of in this section of Psalm 119 
is not so much a physical persecution. The psalmist doesn't appear to be at risk in terms of his, his material life. It's not as if he thinks he's going to walk outside and be physically attacked. But nonetheless, as he looks at his life and looks at the situation that he's facing, what he sees are pitfalls all around him. He, he's, he's stuck in this scenario where if he says one thing, he'll fall into a trap. And if he says something else, he'll fall into a trap. And perhaps if he keeps silent, he knows that will connote something to those who are persecuting him. Everywhere he turns, every option he has seems to have a pitfall associated with it. So he can say, these, these people have, have dug pitfalls all around me. I, I, I can't even move. At a smaller scale, have you ever been in a conversation like that? Where someone pushes you and you feel as if you're backed into a corner and you think to yourself, if I say nothing, that will get me into trouble? If I say this, that will get me in trouble. There's, there's no way out. And the psalmist has a life now that contains those kinds of pitfalls around him. And it's worse than physical pain because what they have done is they've attacked the very core of who he is. They've persecuted, verse 86, me with falsehood. And so because of the lies that have been told about the psalmist and the way in which this web of lies is surrounding him, he doesn't know where to turn. Now, again, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it should not surprise us as Christians if we find ourselves in a situation that at least seems to be analogous to what the psalmist is here describing. About eight months ago, I, I got a, a long email from a board member at the seminary, and he detailed something that was happening in the context of his own church, and, and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a kind of attack that had been made against him. And, and, and as he outlined it and asked for prayer and also gave warnings and advice in the midst of it, he, he said, he said I, think, I think we have to recognize that it's probably not if but when in terms of these attacks on any of us as those who hold to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we're surprised when we face a situation like verse 86. But we shouldn't be surprised because if you look at the New Testament, it's not just the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119, but if you look at the New Testament, you see that again and again the pattern of the apostles is that they are slandered in the same way. In fact, the very same words that are used by the psalmist here, the word persecute, which is mentioned several times, and, and, and the word slander, which is used, and falsehood, which is used. Each of these words are actually used to, to describe the situation that the apostles themselves faced. Peter faced this kind of persecution and slander, even from his very first public sermon on the day of Pentecost. The apostle John faced this kind of slander. Paul faced it many times, and he outlines for us in the New Testament, delineates with great detail, all the ways in which he faced this. The first martyr, Stephen, while ultimately he was physically killed, before that he was slandered. What he had taught was twisted. 
And he was uh, given a charge that, that he couldn't possibly refute in a way that would be satisfying to those who had power over him. And of course, we look at the example, and we can't miss this from Psalm 119. We look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who was slandered more than Jesus? Because you see, when we're slandered today, we realize that in some measure, while the specific charges may or may not be true, the reality is we are sinners. We're sinners who have much to repent of. But, but Jesus, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And yet, what does the Bible call him? A man of sorrows who is acquainted with much grief. Whatever we might say about ourselves and the way in which we are deserving of scorn, he was scorned and was completely innocent of all these charges. No, what we would say of ourselves couldn't be said of Jesus. Look at the character of these persecutors. This is important to note in the psalm. The character of these who have done this to the psalmist, he's, he calls them in verse 85, insolent. That's how the ESV translates it. It's, it's the word for proud, really. But these are men who, who, who think that they can somehow take him down and they're, 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 they're glad to do it. They exist in their pride, and, and more importantly, and really going hand in hand with pride, is this, according to verse 85, they care nothing for God's law. And how do we know they care nothing for God's law? How does he know they care nothing for God's law? Well, for one thing, he knows they care nothing for God's law because they care nothing for the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. He said, they're persecuting me with falsehood. And so, of course, they care nothing for the law of God. I want to remind you what the larger catechism says about the duties of the ninth commandment. In fact, that's the question. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? And here's the answer. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, and on and on it goes. And so the psalmist can say, because they're lying about me, they care nothing for the truth, therefore they care nothing for the law of God. Now, what's the psalmist's response to all this? What's the psalmist's response when he reaches the end of the line? Now, first of all, you may want to ask yourself, what's been your response when you've experienced something like this? Well, here's what the psalmist does. Verse 84, first thing we could note. The psalmist prays for God's judgment to come. Now, note, he's... Not praying, according to verse 84, when will you judge those who persecute me? He's, he's not praying in a vengeful way. He himself is not going to take this judgment into his own hands. You know, we have examples of that in the Bible, actually very early on in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, you have this, uh, this, you're introduced to this man named Lamech. 
And, and what characterizes him, he's a wicked man, but he, he, he actually compares himself to Cain and said, if Cain's revenge is 70-fold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. In other words, I, I will completely ruin anyone who comes against me. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist is not saying, I'm going to extract justice. But what he is saying is, Lord, when will you bring about justice? When will you judge those who persecute me falsely? Now, this is a sentiment that's repeated over and over by the righteous. We could see it in Psalm 5, Psalm 6, Psalm 35, Psalm 69. We could see it in Jesus' woes against the false teachers and Paul's uh, declaration of judgment against false teachers. We could see it in the persecuted saints in, in Revelation 6 who are crying out for justice in heaven before the Lord. They're not crying out out of any kind of sinful desire to take matters into their own hands, but they're crying out for God's justice. They know what's happened. It's happened to them, and now they're translated into glory, and they're praying that God will, in fact, bring about justice. Peter says, he reminds those who are suffering in 1 Peter, God is the one who judges justly. And Paul, of course, says this quite clearly, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, I want to say this because it's very easy for us to miss this feature in the Bible. Number one, the Bible isn't, and the psalmist isn't saying he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's praying to the Lord. And I want to say this as well. The only reason that we or the psalmist can have any hope of God's justice and judgment being good news for us, working for our benefit, is because of what the Bible teaches us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says that those who are in Christ have no need to fear the judgment of God because Christ has taken on our sin and its penalty and has borne it on our behalf that we might stand before God free from condemnation. Again, I'll quote from the larger catechism this beautiful question and answer that it has about what will happen to the righteous on the day of judgment. And listen to this. If you're in Christ, you should should rejoice in these words. At the day of judgment, the righteous, being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery. The psalmist isn't saying, Lord, I want you to bring your judgment, and I'm exempt from it because I have lived a perfect life. No, the psalmist recognizes the grace of God in his life, recognizes that for him, because he knows the Lord, the judgment of God, is the time when he will be openly acknowledged and acquitted, freed from all sin and misery. What else does he do? He prays to God specifically about the future judgment. And then look at verse 86. I love this cry at the end of verse 86. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. And then what does he do? Help me. See, there are points in our lives, and perhaps you've, experience this, where it feels like all you can do is just cry out to the Lord for help. And if you do that, you're in good company. The psalmist does that. God's people do that throughout 
the Scriptures. They cry out for help. Peter actually tells those who are suffering in the church to do this. Humble yourselves, he says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. You see the psalmist recognizes that? Lord, you're a God who helps. You're a God who cares. I am in need of help. Help me, God, at the proper time. And of course, Peter says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And and I believe all of that is contained in what the psalmist is saying in verse 86, help me. Now, I need to ask two questions at this point as we look at these slanderers, these persecutors, these these men who hate the law of God because they're willing to bear false witness. First question I have to ask, and it may seem striking or strange because this psalm is written from the perspective of the one being persecuted. But but nonetheless, we, we have to ask this question when we look at the description that he gives of these ones persecuting him. Do you, do you resemble, or, or have you in your life resembled the slanderer here? It, it's an odd question, but, but we have to ask it. Are you one who is persecuting others with falsehood? Are you seeking to, to dig pitfalls around someone so that there's really no way out, damaging their reputation, breaking the implications of the ninth commandment against them? Not thinking the best of them. Not judging them charitably. Not rejoicing in their good name. But actually, instead of speaking the truth in love, shading the truth with falsehoods so that they might be cast down in the same way. Well, if that is a description of you, notice what the psalm says. When will you judge those? Who persecute me. But the second implication of this is you can ask yourself, how how do you respond to the slander of those who care nothing for God's law? Again, Paul in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul goes on to say, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, in looking at this, we might ask yet another question, which is, what is it that the psalmist is trusting in? What does he do? He cries out to God. He cries out to God for help. He cries out to God for justice, for judgment. But what is it that he's trusting in in the middle of it? And this is the thread, really, that runs through the whole thing, and it's the thread that runs through all of Psalm 119, and that's the thread of God's Word. Look at what he says in verse 81, I hope in your Word. Verse 82, I'm longing for your promise. Verse 83, I've not forgotten your statutes. Verse 85, they don't live according to your law, but verse 86, all your commandments are sure. Verse 87, I have not forsaken your precepts. And then even verse 88, 
In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You know what the psalmist has in the midst of this persecution? He's got the Bible. He's got the Word of God. You know, you have that too. If you're being slandered, if you're being persecuted, if you're at the very end of yourself, for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances, you've got the Word of God. And God's commandments are sure and certain. You can bank on them no matter what it looks like in your life. You can trust Him. He's a father who cares for you. The Bible says not a hair falls from your head, but your father in heaven knows it. He he loves you. He understands you better than you even understand yourself. You can't even articulate what you're experiencing to others who care about you. The Lord knows it. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings that words can't even express. When you don't know how to pray as you ought. That's what the Bible says. And he has... The word of God. So many examples of people under duress looking to God's word. One of my favorite ones is in Isaiah 37 when Hezekiah receives this message that uh, the king of Assyria is headed towards him. And he's really surrounded him. And, And he's getting closer and closer. And Hezekiah receives this note saying, you know, surrender immediately. No one else has survived. You're not going to survive. And what it says about Hezekiah's immediate response, his instinctive response is so striking. He goes into the house of the Lord and he spreads himself before the Lord and he, he prays. And then he asks for the prophet to be brought in so that he might hear the word of God. Is that your instinctive response? That you flee to prayer, that you flee to the word of God? In circumstances like this, this is what Jesus does when he's tempted. He quotes the scriptures. If you are struggling, I would urge you today to receive consolation from the scriptures. Go to the Bible. Look to the creator of heaven and earth. The creator God who's the same one who can be counted on today. He's the trust of his people. Our help comes in the name of the Lord. His promised blessings in Christ are guaranteed. He's he's not one of many. He's not a figment of your imagination. He is your creator. And he's the one who comes to you in Christ as your father. But there's a second thing I think that we can note from this psalm about what direction the psalmist looks. And he looks to the word of God and in so doing he looks to God. But look at this, verse 88. He takes it a step further. And this, this, this verse provides such profound comfort to us. He really looks to to God's salvation in Christ. Now, the reason I can be that specific, based on verse 88, which says, in your steadfast love, give me life, is because the word that the psalmist uses here for steadfast love is a Hebrew word that is pregnant with all kinds of meaning and significance. That word translated steadfast love is the word hesed, and it's the word for the covenant faithfulness of God. And what the psalmist does at the end is he doesn't just look broadly at his Bible, although he does do that and he receives comfort for it, but he looks specifically at the covenant promises of God, the promises of salvation that God has made, his steadfast love. And he says, God, in in these covenant promises, in your covenant faithfulness, give me life. Now, if you don't know this about your Bible, your Bible is structured around a a series of covenants. 
And God's covenant love shines through on every page. It's really the main way. These are the main signposts along the way by which God communicates his promises and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in verse 88 is covenant love isn't just the source of the psalmist's hope, although it is that, but it is actually the source of his ability to persevere. And why? Why can he say, in your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth? Well, because if you look at the covenants of the Scriptures, you see that as the Bible introduces the new covenant, it's introduced actually in the Pentateuch, but it's, it's made clear to us in the book of Jeremiah. God makes a promise to give new spiritual life to people so that they obey His commands. Jeremiah the prophet calls this a new covenant. Jesus refers to it in the same way as a new covenant. In just a few moments, we'll be be partaking of a cup. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And here's how Jeremiah explains this new covenant. He says, behold, days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he goes on to describe what is new about it. And he says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, what what we need by nature is forgiveness of our sins, but we also need new hearts. And the psalmist recognizes that those new hearts are promised to us in the covenant promises of God. And so he says, Oh, Father, in, in your steadfast love, in, in, in through your covenant work, give me life that I may continue to obey your commandments in the midst of trial. Now, is that what, you're, what you look for when you're in extremis, when you're at the end of the line? Is this what you point others to? You know those great words from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day number one, what is your only comfort? in life and in death. And if you ask the psalmist this, he would surely say something like this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Do you know these promises to be true? Are you in Christ? Are you a a beneficiary? of His covenant promises. If you are apart from Christ this morning, let me plead with you as, as urgently and with as much authority as I can. Let me plead with you, if you're apart from Christ, to come to Jesus today. Jesus Himself says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest So come to Jesus, repent of your sins, turn to him for forgiveness, trust in him for the eternal life that only he can give and the reconciliation that he gives to us with God. Because you see, when the Bible talks about the day of judgment, it doesn't just talk about the day of judgment and the vindication of the righteous, although it does gloriously speak of that, but it also speaks about the wicked at the day of judgment. And it says, when answering the question, what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment, says, at the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. 
and they're cast out of the presence of God and into eternal fire. May that not be true of you. Come to Christ today. And if you're in Christ, the Bible says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Christ has reconciled us to God. This makes all the difference. If you are in extremis and you're a Christian, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. God's word gives you comfort and hope. Look to it. Continue to look forward to the promises of God in Christ and trust the God of steadfast love. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you once again for your word. It speaks to us with such clarity. We need that. Thank you for it. We pray that you would now, by your Spirit, take your word and confirm it in our hearts. Draw us into closer communion with Jesus Christ, and particularly in the midst of trials. May we look to him. We know that when we do, we'll find him all-sufficient, capable of meeting our needs, capable of keeping us in him. Cause us to persevere, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.